All right. Um, hey, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Um, while you're turning there, let me ask you to be uh, praying for Pete and Mindy Rodriguez. If, um, if you haven't noticed, driving uh, on Lou DeWitt, Logan's Roadhouse is, uh, is closed. They know they've already pulled all the neon signs and stuff off. Uh, Pete was the general manager there. Uh, I got back from our uh, trip to England and, um, and, and Ireland and uh, texted Pete, you know, hey, how's it going? I know you've got options and decisions you're trying to sort through. And he calls me right back saying, well, you know, I'm calling you from the road. We're on our way to Houston. Um, he's taking a job down there. So like, just like that, in 24 hours, um, you know, the Rodriguez's whole, you know, family's been uprooted and turned upside down. So just pray for God's presence and blessing on them, um, and we're going to miss them. So uh, we're, we're looking at uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as I said. These are two verses that um, I remember being a, a new Christian, um, right? Uh, I was a sophomore at JMU, and, and as a new Christian, I'm trying to figure out, well, what does a new Christian do? Uh, what does it mean to be a disciple? And so people were telling me, well, you know, you got to find a church. And I didn't have a church, so I found a church. And, um, you know, you need, to, you need to read God's Word. You need to have, you know, devotional time, quiet time. And so, okay, start reading the Bible. I've never done that before. And, uh, and you need to memorize God's Word. And so I'd never read it before, therefore I'd never memorized it. And so, all right, what are some good verses to memorize? And somebody said, well, here's, you know, Romans 12, 1 and 2. So that was great, and it meant a lot to me early on in my discipleship to realize God wants me to live all of my life as basically this offering to him, what we just sang, um, a living sacrifice. Um, and what we're going to see is that it's much more than just a great memory verse. It certainly is that. But as we read these two verses, I want you to keep in mind that, that Paul is using them as a, a turning point. From all that he said before, verses, uh, chapters 1 through 11, about who we are in Christ, to beginning to talk about how do we act like Christ. Talk, moving from justification to sanctification. Please stand in honor of God's word. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, would you help us to do just that? Uh, even now, we, we want to know um, and be what is good and acceptable and perfect. We pray that you would take our lives and let us be more and more your image bearers, more and more your disciples, more and more living sacrifices. And we pray this through the power and in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So these are, these are important verses, not just lifted out of the Bible because they're really helpful to help us understand what discipleship is about, but because they act like a hinge, uh, a heavy-duty hinge, a very, very important 
weight-bearing hinge that separates everything that Paul has been saying up to this point about uh, who you are. And that includes the, the hard medicine of this is who you are apart from Jesus. This is who you are uh, left to your own sinful nature. This is who you are when you follow your nose. Um, and the good news, the wonderful me- medicine of the gospel, that this is who you are in Christ. Jesus defines you. This is your righteousness. By faith in him, you, know, you are accounted as good and pleasing and perfect. And, and, and so that's the first part of the hinge. And now what Paul is getting ready to turn to, he's moved from, this is the indicative, is the you know, grammatical way to describe it. This is what indicates who you are to the imperative. This is what you should do. This is how you live a life in light of what has been just explained about all that's true because of Jesus. Now, how do you and I get our lives in sync with the kingdom of God? How do you and I live lives of consistent Christianity? If we believe these things are true, then therefore we want to we walk in step with what is true. Uh, all right, so that's the hinge, this Here's who you are, and now here's how you need to be who you are, uh, is, is another way to put it. Paul, in, this, in these two important verses, makes an appeal, and he talks about the will of God. Really, just the, the, the two things I want to emphasize this morning. Let's talk about the appeal. Um, why does Paul need to appeal to us? What's an appeal? When you think of an appeal, um, most of us, I think, probably think of a legal appeal, like the court of appeals. And what is that? It's an appeal to justice. You want justice done. And things haven't gone the way you want them to go. And so you're appealing to justice uh, to make things right. Or you, um, you appeal to reason, you appeal to logic, you, you appeal to somebody's common sense. You're making an argument, um, they're thinking one thing, and that's not what you want them to think. You want them to think something else, and so you line things up, A, B, and C, and you say, so therefore, D, right? You know, you appeal to reason, to logic, to common sense. Uh, and what an appeal is designed to do is it's designed to give you an outcome that you're looking for that is different from where things are going. So keep that in mind. Because Paul's making this appeal and he's saying, I don't want you to be conformed to the world. And when he's talking about being conformed to the world, what he's got in mind are things like, don't think like the world thinks. Uh, the world has an assumption. The world thinks that Basically, everybody is okay. Um, God's a grandfather in the sky. He's going to just bless everybody indiscriminately. Yeah, of course, there, there are those really, really good people, and God bless them. They're going to have heavenly houses that are bigger than mine and fancier than mine, but, you know, I'm good. You're good. We're all good. Um, and, of course, there are those really, really bad people who are uh, in, in heaven, in eternity, whatever it is. They're going to be on the other side of the tracks. But for the most part, all of us are, are doing just fine. And that's the world's view of spirituality. That's the world's view of eternity. 
Um, and that's where they're headed. So, so does that view need to be reinforced at all? Does what the world already thinks need to be appealed to, believe more passionately? To, to, that, that wouldn't require an appeal on Paul's behalf if that's his message, if that's the message of the Bible, if that's the message of the New Testament, if you're new to the Bible or new to church, and if that's what you kind of think about, well, I'm going to be a good person. And yeah, there's people who are better than me, and God bless them. And there are certainly people who are worse than me, and you know, God's going to deal with them. But, but I'm a good person. We're all pretty good people here, and it's all going to work out just fine. If that's what you're thinking, let me, let me make it very clear. Paul is appealing to you. He's appealing to all of us. Think heavenly thoughts. Think, think in accordance with the gospel. Think in accordance uh, with the Bible. So, so then, you know, let's talk about the appeal. What, what are Paul's appeals? Paul is asking us to have something, uh, an outlook that's different from the world's. He's calling us to change course. He's calling us to to think about something and live a life that's different than the default mode and direction of the world. Um, he's calling us to something that's unnatural. He's calling us to something supernatural. Um, we can break that down into two parts in these two verses. The first appeal, a supernatural appeal, is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do you see that there um, in verses 1 and 2? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Second appeal, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, let's start with the first one. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul says that God cares what we do with our bodies. Christianity isn't a strictly spiritual religion. Uh, we... we we certainly believe it's a religion. We certainly believe it's spiritual, but it's not just spiritual. It's not just spirituality. Uh, it's very material. It's, it's as, as much as we're looking forward to the new heavens, um, we're also looking forward to a new earth. In fact, we're looking forward to, to heaven descending uh, and being joined uh, to earth. This beautiful picture of the wedding, uh, the union of the two. Uh, in Revelation. And so keep that in mind when you hear the Bible talk about the body. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. God cares about your body and my body and what we do with our bodies. He cares about what we put into our bodies. He cares about how much we uh, eat and drink. He cares about what we eat and what we drink. Uh, he cares about what we do with our bodies. He cares about simple things like, are we getting enough uh, sleep? Are we getting enough exercise? Uh, he cares about what we do with our bodies sexually. And we're in this weird phase uh, in the church at large where people are starting to think, well, God doesn't really care too much about sexual sins. Um, but he does. He really does care about whether or not body A and body B are being joined together in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And anything outside of that, he says, is sexual immorality and adultery. Um, and so God cares about our bodies because they're holy and they were designed by him and they show the world 
his beauty, his creative power. Um, Jesus came to us with a human body because it's important to God. The, 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 the sacrament, you know, the incarnation, the, the in the fleshness of Jesus demonstrates beyond a doubt God cares about your body, my body, what we do with our bodies. And God cares about whether or not we care about other people's bodies. He cares about whether or not we care about kids in Malawi, you know, who need surgeries so that they can run and have their bodies made whole. He cares about whether or not we care uh, about the people in our community who are hungry and homeless. Uh, and he cares about whether we care if uh, people around the world have, you know, clean water to drink and access to health care and just et cetera. So, Christianity, as, as, as much as it's a spiritual religion, and absolutely, uh, God wants us to care for our souls. We have to pay attention to our souls. That doesn't mean that that's at the expense of everything else, that God doesn't care about material things, physical things, bodily things. He does. So present your bodies as living sacrifices. Bring before God, put on the altar everything about you, your body, a living temple, um, and, and mine. So that's appeal number one. Appeal number two is to let your um, mind be renewed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, this is an important message too for us. Uh, I think the church in particular needs the, the message about the importance of the body. We just tend to think that all God cares about is the soul. What's important is, you know, getting... Uh, the gospel message out there, and that is important. But it's also important to care, care for people's bodies because Jesus did both. That said, the world uh, needs to know that God cares about the mind um, and what we think and whether or not what's going on up in our brains, um, how that's affecting what we're doing nine to five, you know, day in and day out because ideas have consequences. Ideas bring into birth things, entities, um, industries, corporations, um, uh, policies, all of that, all that begins in, you know, clean, well-lit, uh, comfortable leather chair board boardrooms, you know, where there's tremendous power to bless and to curse, because ideas have consequences. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Embrace the reality that truth is truth and lies are lies and what we think matters. So, if that's, if that's true and, and it is true, you know, what, what we believe has bearing on our lives. Doctrine matters. What, what's in this book matters and it has bearing on how you do friendships. Uh, how you do work, how you do marriage, how you do parenting. Everything in our lives is impacted by what we think, and if our thinking isn't impacted by God's truth, then what, what are we thinking? We're thinking the way the world thinks. We're not having our minds being transformed and, and being renewed. So that's the, the importance of, of Scripture. Um, we also want to remember that what we think is not just simply, um, well, I'll put it this way. In the first service, we were, we were looking at the fact that we're in this culture that increasingly wants to 
to, to sort of reduce what uh, Descartes made famous, he said, I think, therefore I am. Um, our culture wants to just reduce that maxim into I am, um, that we don't think, that all we are is just uh, the sum of our parts and the result of all these different chemical reactions going on in our brains. We're just beings, not human beings. And part of what it means to be transformed by the renewing of our mind is to say no to that. No, we are human beings. We are rational beings, and, and we're accountable for what we think. And, and we're going to answer for what we believe is, is true or not. Um, and so we're not just simply the result of infinite time plus chance plus random chemical reactions going on in our brains. We're, we're bigger than that. Our lives are, are broader than that. And that's part of Paul's appeal. So... Paul's making an appeal. It's, this isn't normal to think this way. It's not normal to act this way. It's supernatural. The appeals affect the, the body and the mind, and therefore we need to ask, well, what is Paul's rationale for his appeal? What does he point to? He points to the mercy of God. In view of God's mercy, when I was remembering, memorizing this verse, uh, I had the New International Version, and you know, the, the language, the translation was, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies. Um, and, you know, here in our ESV, it reads a little bit different. Regardless, the point is, look at the mercy of God. Remember everything that God has done for us and live your life accordingly. So this is the positive way to say it is, you know, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. The negative way that Paul is expressing this is don't be conformed. To the world. Don't, don't, be trans, don't be conformed to this world, this age. Instead, be transformed. And this is helpful for us to understand Paul's rationale. He uses the word, the phrase, the world, in a, in a particular way. He's not condemning everything that God made and said was good. You know, we, we remember that, and that's valuable. God made this world, and it's a good world. But it is broken, and it is sinful. And when Paul uses, sometimes when Paul uses the word world, he does it in the way that other New Testament authors use it. Like um, the Apostle John, his first epistle, he says, do not love the world or anything of the world, you know, because uh, if you love the world, the love of the Lord is not in you. Um, and what, what that is, is it's a shorthand expression to say everything that is broken, everything that is sinful, everything that's in rebellion against God's good purposes, don't love that, you know, and... Um, and when we talk about the three, uh, you know, historically, the three enemies of the church, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the world can be understood as the corporate nature of us as individuals living under the influence of the sinful nature of the flesh. You know, I make decisions and actions that are governed by my sinful nature, and you do too, and so does Sally, and so does Mary, and so does Peter, and so does Johnny, and you know, everybody corporately. When you put all that together, that's the world, acting in rebellion, corporate rebellion against God. So Paul's saying, don't be conformed to that. Don't do, don't do life that way. The rationale is look at the mercy of God. The world doesn't understand mercy. The world only understands the logic of what's in it for me and what do I have to do to get it. I mean, I know I'm oversimplifying, but bear with me. Um, there's a fundamental outlook that the world maintains that if you work really, really hard, God is duty-bound to reward you. 
Uh, he owes it to you to bless you. Um, and it really looks at the re relationship between you and God as an employer and an employee. You've done your hard work. Your employer owes you a paycheck. That's the way the world fundamentally views God. Uh, another sort of spin on that that's becoming more and more prevalent as I look around is uh, really, you know, it doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter if you work really, really hard for God because he's obliged to bless you anyway. You're entitled to it, you know, whether or not you work hard. Both of those views um, have put the self at the center. You know, I'm, I'm most important. I'm at the center of the universe. And Paul has been working through the book of Romans to confront that worldly outlook. Um, and so uh, this is basically a review of Romans. In, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything that I've just written about God's mercy, and, and if you've got your Bibles, you know, open to chapter 1. I'm, we're gonna just, I'm going to leaf through each of the chapters here. In chapter 1, Paul's addressing this worldly outlook that, you know, you can worship whatever you want. It doesn't matter, you know, suppressing the, the, what we know to be true about God doesn't matter as long as we're, you know, expressing some kind of devotion in some way, shape, or form. And Paul says, no, it does matter. Um, you can't suppress the, the knowledge of God. Chapter 2, Paul moves on and he's talking about how God will judge everyone, uh, not in a vindictive way, not in a mean-spirited way, but with justice. But the world thinks God's permissive, um, you know, like the, like the campus police, you know. They know the drinking's going on all over the place, but they just, you know, they'll turn a blind eye to it. Um, people think God's going to do the same thing. Uh, chapter 3, the world looks at people and, you know, most people are basically good. And Paul's pointing out, no, uh, according to the gospel and according to God's standard, there's no one righteous and the only way you and I can be righteous is through the righteousness of another and putting our, our faith in him. Um, Paul continues, chapter 5, where um, the world wants to believe that I'm the captain of my fate, you're the captain of your own fate, we all are autonomous, we all call our own shots, and Paul says, no, you don't. We, and we need to live a life that recognizes we have a representative, um, Adam is Adam and Eve are representatives, and through faith in Jesus, he can be your representative as well. Um, chapter six: the world thinks it's free, free to do whatever it wants, free to be who you want to be. You can uh, you can be whatever you want to be, um, and instead, Paul's saying no. In fact, we, one valid way to express it is that we're slaves. We're not free. And we're either slaves to sin, the sinful nature that controls us, or we're slaves to righteousness if we have the Holy Spirit controlling us. So just continuing to, to make this distinction between the way the world looks at religion and God and how to do life versus God's way of doing life, being transformed and conformed to that, to that way of living. Chapter 7, Paul you know, is confronting this view that says, you know, you should just follow your urges. Um, be true to yourself. And Paul says, no, I'm, I'm, I, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. Uh, there's this conflict, this war within me, and that, that's, that's proper. We should feel that struggle. Uh, chapter 8, the world doesn't know how to make sense of suffering. 
Suffering is something you run from. Hardship is something you, you, you avoid like a, like a disease. And Paul's saying, no, in fact, suffering can be a blessing. Suffering can be a gift because it shows you that God is for you. He's with you. He's not going to abandon you. He's even going to bless you uh, on the other side of that. And on it goes. Uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul's pointing out, look, there is no other salvation except through Jesus that God is bringing people from every tribe and tongue and nation all together to make one new nation, one new Israel, with King Jesus, the Messiah, um, as, as Lord. So I, I, all to fundamentally address this viewpoint that thinks that God is obliged to bless you, that if you are true to yourself, if you work hard, if you, know, if you check the boxes, then God's going to bless you. But the gospel says, God has already blessed you. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't work hard enough to deserve it. You're not entitled to it. It's not owed to you. It's not obliged to you. It is a gift, and it's yours and it's already been given to you in Jesus. By grace, through faith in him, you're saved, you're brought into a relationship with God, your sins are forgiven, you're adopted and made his child, you're given a hope and a future and an eternal inheritance. He will never leave you, nothing can, can, be, can stand against you because he is for you. And that is true for all who call on Jesus. You're already blessed. And Paul is saying he is appealing to something that is unnatural for us is to realize you're already blessed. You didn't earn it. It's not obliged to you. And because you already have it, live your life in relation and in reaction to that. Love the Lord. Be grateful to him. Live a life where you're demonstrating you already own those blessings. They've already been given to you. Let your life demonstrate that reality. Live a life in view of God's mercy. That's, that's the appeal. That's the rationale. Um, and I love, we're going to get to this next week. We're kind of doing, doing this backwards. Um, this is the, the last uh, in the, the Roman series for now. Next week we begin the Next Step of Faith campaign. Um, and so we'll be talking about stewardship and different things. And so next week we're going to go to the we're going to back up to the last couple of verses in chapter 11. But look where it says in chapter 11, verse 35. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? It's impossible. That's the worldly way of thinking. Don't think that way. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and live a life in view of God's mercy. Uh, we'll get back to Romans. Uh, we'll finish chapters 12 through 16 um, after Christmas. But uh, as I said, we're going to do the Next Step of Faith series and then Advent and then good grief. Uh, it'll be 2017. So what about the will of God, right? What about the will of God? Paul is saying that, um, that there is a, a will that is good and pleasing and, and acceptable and perfect, God's will. And that you and I can live that life. That's what's extended to us. Uh, but we have to keep our eyes on, on God's mercy in order to do that. 
when we were in London this past week, um, I've, I've been several times before we would go on these uh, mission trips to visit Elam Ministries, uh, and they have a Bible college outside of London. But I've never been uh, to the London Observatory prior to this past week. And, and at the London Observatory is where the Prime Meridian uh, is marked. It's in, it's in Greenwich. So that's where the eastern and western hemispheres are divided along that Prime Meridian. And it's, um, it's a bit of an arbitrary line. And there's an interesting kind of history about, well, well, who gets to determine where is the Prime Meridian? You know, where do the longitudinal lines begin? Um, and uh, and where, does, where do the two hemispheres divide? Because what that impacts is all the nautical, you know, um, uh, measurements, and, uh, and especially when, when people were sailing, they would have to know where that meridian was in order to chart the stars and know exactly where they are, you know, in the Atlantic or the Pacific or whatever. So it's, it's a big deal. You don't want to lose sight of the prime meridian. You don't want to not know where you are. And that's what Paul is saying. You can't lose sight of the mercy of God. You've got to have a view to the mercy of God or you're going to be lost. You're going to be, your life is going to be aimless and you're going to wander. You're not going to know what God's will is. So does God have a will for your life? Well, all right, let's, 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 let's acknowledge that that assumes two things. A, that there is a God and that B, he does, he does care uh, how you and I live. Um, so let's make those two assumptions for a second. But if he doesn't have a will for your life, or if there is no God at all, who you know, wouldn't have a will anyway, then life is random uh, and meaningless. Um, so keep this in mind if you have people that you care about who would question whether or not there's a God and whether there's a will, or if, if, if you're even wondering those things, because it has awful implications. Um, a, um, beauty becomes meaningless. If, if, if there's no will of God, if there's no point, if there's no purpose, then why do we care about beauty? Why do we have museums? Why do we have galleries? Uh, while we were in London, we saw mind-blowing things. Uh, walked into the, uh, the, the uh, London... Uh, the British Museum is what I'm trying to say. Walked into the British Museum there in just very plain glass security, you know, um, climate-controlled enclosure is the Rosetta Stone. And people are standing around it. The Rosetta Stone is this edict from a king um, inscribed on the stone in three different languages. And it's what allowed um, archaeologists to understand what hieroglyphics meant, you know, what all those crazy pictures and all the Egyptian tombs were about. That's how we know, because of that stone. Um, very significant artifact. But if life is meaningless, and if there's no will of God, if there's no purpose for why we exist, who cares? Who cares, you know, about that stone or that rock? Who, who cares about uh, walking into the, the British Library and going into their um, um, special exhibits room and looking uh, again, under glass, at the original manuscript of Handel's Messiah that he wrote in about a month, by the way. Um, and and the, the book is open to the Hallelujah Chorus. And in Handel's handwriting, you know, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God omnipotent reigneth. I mean, 
And then uh, you know, that, that's, that's the original document. Holy cow. Walk around the corner, and there's the Magna Carta. Um, uh, and you realize how that has shaped politics and power and countries and everything. And, but if, if there's no will of God for our lives, then why does any of that matter? Beauty becomes meaningless. History becomes meaningless. Cultures become meaningless. Keep in mind, too, that that's not only true for beauty, but it's true for evil. It means that evil doesn't matter. It means that it doesn't matter what people do. Um, interestingly, uh, we had a connection in Dublin, so we got to visit Dublin. And if you go on TripAdvisor, among the 300 or so uh, things that are listed as tourist attractions, you know, the places, things to do uh, in Dublin, the number one thing to do in Dublin, the highest ranked attraction in Dublin, it's not a pub, uh, it's a jail. <laughs> Uh, it, it's, it's this jail um, and that was significant because of uh, Ireland's um, quest for independence from the monarchy. Um, jails become moot because evil or your construct of evil or what's bad or what's good becomes meaningless. It means that it doesn't matter if a presidential politician, you know, uh, abuses the truth you know, in, in, her, in her claims. It doesn't matter if a presidential politician abuses women, you know, in, uh, in, in his pastimes. Uh, none of that matters if God doesn't have a plan, if there's no will, if you and I are just wandering aimless through uncharted waters. The good news is God does have a will, a good, acceptable, perfect will for our lives, and if we live in step with that will, our life can be glorious. A glorious life. Not a random or meaningless life, but a beautiful, glorious life. Incidentally, Jesus said there is a God. So if you're questioning that, if your friends are questioning that, um, point them to Jesus. And if they don't believe Jesus, you know, pray. Continue to pray. Um, and not only does God live, but he does have a plan, and he cares about how we live, and that's why he sent Jesus to live among us, to tabernacle among us, to show us how to live. Uh, and God's will is good, acceptable, it's perfect. What is God's will for me? Well, your, uh, your purpose, my purpose, uh, the purpose for humanity is to live in accordance with how God designed us. And we see that in verse 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, to live all of life, everything about me, mind, body, soul, you know, anything, the words that we speak, the things that we do in our spare time, all of that gets put on the altar and it's offered to him. That is a God-pleasing life. And the, the tremendously good news, the remarkably good news, is that you and I don't have to strive to be holy and acceptable before God because we already are through Jesus. And that's justification. That's what brings us into proper alignment with God. He approves of us because Jesus lived that holy, acceptable life in our place. And he died on the cross to take away the sins of all of us all the times when we don't live like that. 
so we can be forgiven. And when we believe in him, we not only get our sins forgiven, but we get his goodness credited to us, his holiness and acceptability credited to us. We become rich in that regard. And that's beautiful good news. And then God tells us, all right, here's what's indicative about you. Now here's the imperative. Go be who you are. Be holy and acceptable. Live that kind of life and grow into that kind of life. Be transformed. Beautiful words. Hope-filled words. You and I can be transformed. You and I can be renewed. You and I can change. You can change. You have to change. And I have to change. We are not content to be, you know, this mass of contradictions that we are today. And by God's grace, tomorrow and the next day after that, we'll become more and more consistent as disciples. It's not linear. There's crazy ups and downs. But God help us if we're not progressing toward that goal. It matters what we think. It matters what we do with our bodies. It matters if we care whether or not our lives are living sacrifices. So... What's your next step as a disciple? What's your next step? What's my next step as I seek to live all of my life in conformity with God's good and acceptable and perfect will? What am I going to do with my body? What changes do I need to make to be a better steward of my body? What changes do I need to make in how I think? And what do I assume? And what am I suspicious of? And what are my default modes of thinking? Am I bringing those things before the Lord? And since this is the elephant in the room, do I really want to change? Do I really want to see transformed and renewed how I view money? Do I really want to take the next step as a disciple to give God more control, to be more aware of my blind spots in places where I'm not really understanding his lordship over my wallet and my purse? Do I really want that? I think you do. I think when, if you want to live as a consistent disciple, of course you want that. It makes us anxious. I'm anxious. It makes me anxious to talk about money. And it makes me anxious to think about, gosh, we're going to do a whole series on stewardship. What are we doing? But I think it's going to be fantastic. God doesn't just want your money. God, God's got everything. Everything belongs to him. You know what he wants? He wants you. He wants your whole life to be a living sacrifice. And that includes this. That belongs to him. And yours does too. So we're going to take a deep breath. We're going to take our next step of faith together. And we are going to endeavor to do what Paul says. Live your life in view of God's mercy. And if we do that, guess what? Other people get to see, get a view of God's mercy through us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you for Jesus who shows us your love and your mercy. And we pray that 
that uh, the people around us, uh, whether uh, they're very close to us or whether we just pass them um, only in a brief moment, uh, Lord, we pray that they would see Jesus, they would see your mercy, and they would see your love uh, through us. Uh, this won't happen unless we are conscious of the appeal uh, that you make through Paul uh, to us to, to live these lives that are contrary to, to the flesh, that, um, that are not part of the world's default mode, but really take intentionality and discipleship. So Lord, lead us in our next steps of faith. Please bless us and, uh, and, and consecrate the next uh, several weeks, these, uh, the series ahead of us as we seek to take our next step of faith together as a congregation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.